صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Rob. How are you doing? Oh, mate, I'm enjoying lockdown. It just seems to be this common theme that we have throughout Melbourne these days. So you know what it's doing in the other states, but uh, all good. How about you and your crew? My crew and I are okay. I mean, we're pretty practiced at lockdown now, but just a little bit of a taste of what life's like for a Palestinian and, you know, 1% of what a Palestinian in Gaza is going through. Post the alleged ceasefire and what that actually means, we're very lucky to be joined by an Aussie pala out of Queensland, Dr. Jemaine Nabilsi. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm not quite a doctor yet, though, but, you know, hopefully in a year or two. You may be the most Australian sounding Palestinian I've ever heard. You are (laughs) rocking the Aussie accent. It's just, if we couldn't, we can't see you. We would think that you are a fully blown Aussie there. Just my my podcast Aussie accent. Well, you're rocking it, mate. Jamal, we've got you on because you've written a fantastic article and we're going to put that in the podcast and we'll talk about it a little bit later on. But Jamal, our audience don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your Palestine to Australia journey? Yeah, sure thing. Um, So I'm Jamal Nabilsi. My dad's side of the family is Palestinian um, and my mum's side of the family is British. And so my dad's dad, my granddad, uh, left Palestine in 48 as a, as a refugee from, from Nablus though. So from the, um, 67 territories from the West bank, um, which is somewhat unusual, but, um, I guess his, his family got out because they could, and they, I guess they foresaw what was going to happen in 1967. Basically they, they foresaw the like further colonization that was coming him and his family, they fled to Jordan and they, I think like a lot of Palestinian families uh, spent some time sort of the Levant region, I guess, some time in Lebanon um, and Syria. And that's where my dad was born in Syria, but he grew up mostly in, in Jordan. And then Went to England for boarding school, which is where I met my mum, high school sweethearts. Very cute story. And then eventually they they spent sort of some time between there and Jordan before moving over here to Australia. And then I was born here on um, on Yagra and Tubal country in um, in uh, Mianjin, um, so called Brisbane, um, and then grew up mostly here. So your mum went from you know polite society in England to Jordan that must have been a uh, must have gone down with your grandparents on your maternal side yeah um yeah somewhat that was a bit of a funny relationship with my uh, yeah my mum's um parents growing up but um but yeah she she actually grew up kind of all over the place like she was born in Pakistan actually um and she grew up in between a bunch of different places, um, like the US, Japan. Um, her dad traveled a lot for work. So she was, um, 
yeah not so grounded i guess in in england as a place no not 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 such a colonialist um yeah. <laughs> so how, how have you found living i mean this is one of the real challenges for palestinians living as settlers in unceded land you know you, you spoke about the country that you're living on and the fact you know so-called brisbane yeah absolutely um i think yeah, it's, it's a real um, ambivalent kind of position that we hold here as um, Palestinians, as Palestinian settlers um, on Indigenous land here, um, as being kind of at once settlers here, but uh, Indigenous to Palestine and unable to go back there. Um, and I think it really, like I've always understood, inevitably understood, <laughs> Palestine through the lens of Australia and Australia through the lens of Palestine and understood those forms of settler colonialism um, kind of, yeah, through the lens of one another. And I think um, it took me physically going to Palestine and um, really seeing the, I think, the more brutal kind of sheer violence of um settler colonialism there to be able to understand my position as a settler here and all of the violence that that entails. And even if being, you know, relatively shielded from that violence um, growing up, um, understanding that still structurally here, um, I'm a settler and, um, ongoing colonization and settler colonial violence is carried out very much in my name and I actively benefit from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of one yeah. of the, I, I wonder if you've had the same experience, but one of the challenges I've had with our Palestinian community in Australia is that they've been so ready to escape the violence of settler colonialism in Palestine and the challenges in those neighboring countries like you know the Levant, they get here in their pursuit to be white they're almost, um, it's not until they're actually had the slap, if you will, of do you realise that you're a settler here? You know, they quickly accept that dominant white narrative. How much more can we do from, you know, they make tens of thousands of dollars. There's already all this advantage when, in fact, if you have a look at the numbers, whether it be mortality rate, income disparity, uh, incarceration of youth, etc., the parallels between the Indigenous uh, life here in colonialism, under colonialism, and a Palestinian person, whether it be in 48, 67 or Jerusalem or Gaza, the numbers are, are so, so similar within, you know, the smallest percentages uh, when you actually extrapolate them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and I, I've definitely um, done that kind of uh, performing whiteness for a long, long time in my life. Um, I think, yeah, you know, and a lot of a lot of parents are interested in their kids primarily, just um, you know, not not experiencing racial violence, not experiencing the racial violence that they've been um, subject to, and so um, you know, encourage encourage that maybe not explicitly but implicitly, um, you know, to to try and protect you from that that racial violence. Um, but I don't know, I think at, at some point it, you know, you, you realise that no matter how hard you try to perform that whiteness, 
you're never going to be completely successful. You're always going to be trying and trying. You'll never be completely accepted by white Australia in this case um, as one of them essentially. And I mean, it's it's exhausting. Like you get exhausted by it. Do you do you feel like that that uh, you'll never be completely accepted? Oh, I mean, absolutely, yeah. Okay. But I think I've come to a place now where, like, that's that's not what I'm looking for. That's not what I want. I mean, I don't want to be brought into dominant white society and to then perpetrate that that same violence um, against others to feel like they have to conform to that kind of whiteness. Through my twenties, I guess I came more into my Palestinianness. Yeah, have come to a place where I'm very, you know, proud of that and proud to claim that. So Jamel, was that following a visit to Palestine? How did you claim your Palestineness? I think, yeah, so the couple of visits that I've done were definitely really big, pivotal pivotal moments in, in that. Um, I think also just learning more about, about Palestine, learning more about like family and the history of my family, which is tied up in those visits as well. When you went to Palestine, did you go through Tel Aviv or through Jordan over the bridge? Through Jordan. So I still have family in Jordan. So yeah, both times that I've been on the way in and on the way out, I stay with, with my auntie and her family. So it's nice to catch up with them on the, on the way through and back as well. When you got there, you would have been fully educated of what's going on over there. Could it have possibly given you any idea of the reality on the ground? I don't know. I guess even those things that you know so well kind of theoretically or that you know you've read so much about you've seen so many pictures of like it can never really prepare you for just like the the brutal reality of checkpoints the wall like witnessing the incursions into your neighborhood by israeli soldiers and that kind of thing you feel like you're so familiar with it from just seeing it on the news constantly or reading about it none of that really prepares you for the actual physical experience of it the horrific reality. So Nabilsi means you're from Nablus. How long did you spend in Nablus? So I, I've spent kind of a few days there, both both trips that I um, was in Palestine. I was living mostly in Ramallah, but I would like quite a few day trips to Nablus because I have friends in, in Ramallah. So that was always the kind of landing point for me. Was it for your research or were you going there to reconnect to a route? Kind of both, actually. The first time I went, I went to a, a youth conference that was on there. And then the second time, it was for research, but it was also... You know, it was also very much an opportunity to reconnect. And, you know, sometimes I joke that like my whole PhD is just basically an excuse to reconnect. So, yeah. How long did you spend each time? First time was three weeks. And then the second time was um, like almost the full three months that I was able to spend there on the, yeah, the tourist visa. Proper immersion. Yeah. I mean, it feels, you know, if, at the end of that time, it, it felt like it went so quickly though. And I really wanted to stay longer, but. Did you really feel the connection to the land? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's something that you hear, which is a beautiful thing. You know, people that haven't been there, but they are Palestinian and they get there and it just feels that I'm home. This is my land. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's the one thing that the the Israeli Zionists never counted on, I suppose, because you're just never going to get the Palestinian blood out of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think I really felt, I remember so clearly like that, the first, like entering into Jericho for the first time. And, you know, after hours at the, like being interrogated at the border. So it's also, there's a big um, 
you know, relief of getting through and like that being over. But yeah, I remember walking onto that bus um, in Jericho and just feel like I just wanted to hug everyone on the bus and and arriving in Jericho <laughs> and being like, you know, this is this is it. And then making it to Ramallah that night and catching up with some friends there and just one of those real moments of, of connection for sure. You've got to use that in the, your next article or your next thing you've written that I felt like hugging everyone on the bus. Yeah. Oh, that is just beautiful. And I think there are those moments of connection to the land itself as well. But I think also that they're, they're always tied up with connections to Palestinians and to people there as well. Like I went on a, a hike while I was there with a, a group of Palestinians who they, they go on a hike every weekend and have a picnic, basically. As we were walking, like one of the elders showed us younger Palestinians how to like identify and pick wild asparagus. And so, yeah, that was that was like a really beautiful moment of learning. And so that that was in like the southern West Bank. And then it must have been a week or two later. Uh, I was in uh, Haifa at the time for con context for the audience. Although these places are both Palestine, Haifa is in 48 Palestine. Um, and it feels like worlds apart from the West Bank, even though it's, uh, you know, essentially would be just down the road if it wasn't for the checkpoints and things you have to go through. I'm in Haifa feeling like, you know, worlds apart from the West Bank and from that hike, sitting on a, a vista looking out at the Mediterranean Ocean with like drinking coffee. And then I, I'm sitting there sort of in, in the grass and I see a little sprig of wild asparagus and I was like, ah, is it? And picked it and tasted it and was like a real moment of connection and of, you know, the power of like, this is all Palestine basically and we know this land. We know this land and this land knows us. Exactly, exactly. Germain, your PhD talks, uh, explores the intersections between emotion and resistance through analysing Palestinian practices of graffiti and hip-hop music. That's right. I know it's a, it's a little bit of a, a mouthful, hey? Are you comparing it to Indigenous hip-hop and graffiti or ju just Palestinians? I wouldn't say it's a comparative um, analysis, but I do definitely draw on, I do definitely draw on a lot of Indigenous theorising about what it means to, to be Indigenous and to resist settler colonialism and also just to stand firm in place in your own sovereignty. Um, so I, I draw... I draw on those ideas, but I wouldn't say I actively compare them as, as case studies, I guess. It's, it's about, yeah, it, it's about Palestine and Palestinian resistance, particularly, specifically. But yeah, draw, drawing on insights from, from here um, and elsewhere as well. So is there a period of that resistance? So basically, I mean, I do kind of track the history of Palestinian resistance and, and situate it in, in that history. But it's, it's essentially, it's, it's about now or about from 2019, which was um, that longer trip to Palestine until about now. And obviously now that period is... Um, involved a lot of change and I'm going to have to incorporate, you know, this, this new movement um, that some are calling like the Intifada of Unity um, and everything that's happening at the moment. Like that's obviously a, a huge moment for Palestinian resistance. It's a great name too. It's a really fantastic name. It's really, really powerful. I mean, for our listeners who don't understand, haven't had a chance to read Jamila's piece, which will be in the podcast, make sure you go to that and check it out. 
the, the unity intifada or intifada unity is talks about Palestinians galvanizing across all of historic Palestine and in fact the neighboring countries. So that unity intifada is about 48 pals, Jerusalem pals, West Bank pals, Gazan pals, all coming together over a the challenges that were faced at Masjid al and then obviously with Sheikh Jarrah and those expulsions. I presume you've been speaking to your friends, colleagues, associates, contacts, etc., on the ground in Palestine. Have you been able to get a sense of how the Intifada of Unity is going? Slash, has it had a real impact? I think, at least like for the friends who I've spoken to, I think it's it seems to have even changed over the last couple of weeks um, as well. I, I guess as we kind of set in for the uh, for the long haul, I guess. Um, and so I think there is a real there has been a real outpour of kind of um, strength and and kind of the, a fire of resistance that I think the, the young generation um, now perhaps haven't really um, expressed before. Like, I think it's always been there and there's always been that kind of, um, yeah, a, emotional um, or affective kind of well of... Um, resistance energy like waiting for for that moment um and i think yeah everything that's that's happened in sheikh sharah and um and and sort of beyond that and everything that came out of that um has unleashed that that well really um and and so we've seen such an an outpour um yeah of palestinian resistance that's just that's just spread I think we should we should also mention that just in your article it says that you know 254 Palestinians were killed, 66 of them were actually children. So part of this intifada, people are dying for Palestine, which is a you know it's nothing new. It's a continual thing. People were shot in um, in Jerusalem and all those sorts of areas as well. But do you think that the media is talking differently as well as what the people are? Um, here in Australia, or yes, well you know all over the world. Yeah. Their language. I think. I mean. I think. I think something that's been really heartening is all of the work that Palestinians have been doing to just bluntly call out the media for their um, like gross misrepresentations and distortions um, that they present of the situation in Palestine. Um, and it's just you know it's just seemingly endless um, list of incredible spokespeople for for Palestine um you know going on interviews with even the more conservative media outlets and just telling them exactly how it is and just taking their questions and just deconstructing them in front of them and telling them no this is why your question is is wrong basically and like you know this is why your question is a lie and um I'm not going to answer that because this here is the truth. Yeah, well, Nas has been on a few different, you know, on, has had more opportunity for TV because people are reaching out because they want the Palestinian uh, voice. Mm. I mean, it's still not fair and it's, you know, we've got a way to go. But uh, is that your thought too, Nasser? Well, I, I think, Rob, there's no question, you know, when Palestinian blood is getting expensed, suddenly we're newsworthy. You know, in 11 days, we had 260 Palestinians die, 70 children, nine families obliterated. When you work that out and you go 11 times 24 is, you know, 264 
270, 260 Palestinians killed. It's one Palestinian an hour. Now, Israel regularly kills Palestinians at sort of about 1.4 a week. So at one Palestinian an hour, we're newsworthy. At one Palestinian a week, 1.4 Palestinians a week, we're not newsworthy. And I can say that because I know a a dear friend had written an article, endeavoured to publish it or put it out to uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Financial Review, a couple of mainstream media outlook. The commentary that came back was, it's not part of our news cycle now. It's a great article. Maybe we can look at putting it in some other time. Mm -hmm. It's it's a real challenge, but it was so much easier for the mainstream media to ignore Palestine, to ignore Palestinians when they could just bring up some bearded, angry type person and go, here's the reason we can, because they're not not powerful to a white audience. But increasingly, increasingly, we're seeing people like Jamal and so many of other our next generation of Palestinians who are, you know, have grown up here in Australia and are in fact sound Australian, as you're saying, Rob, you've got the, the best Palo accent, uh, Aussie Palo accent you've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, love it. It's becoming increasingly hard to deny our agency as representatives of the Palestinians and many of others might have known or whatever. I actually got on Sky News a couple of times, which had never even contemplated. Yeah. I might just quickly, before we come back to you, um, Jamal, just on that point of media bias, I actually wrote a complaint to one of the news articles and uh, newspaper articles. And what, what, what they'd actually written was, you know, weeks of unrest in East Jerusalem, which Palestinians claim is their future capital, has multiple causes. But much of the recent violence stems from a long-running legal effort by Jewish settler groups to evict several Palestinians from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah. And it goes on in the standard Israeli Hasbro. Where I sent him back and I said, look, here's if you give some context, legal context to this article, what you end up with is weeks of unrest in occupied Palestinian East Jerusalem has multiple causes. But much of the recent violence stems from a long running legal effort by Jewish settler groups to expel several Palestinian families from their homes. A lower court ruled earlier, backing the settlers' decades old claim to the plots, disappointing Palestinians who claimed their evidence was not given a fair hearing in the court. And according to international law experts, Israel has no jurisdiction in the occupied city. Quoting Mr. Al-Kurd, a member of the family has already lost part of his home. He said, why is Israeli law only applicable to Jews? If the laws applied to all people living under Israel control, then we could move back to the homes we were forced out of in Haifa. And that's just another example of the duplicity of our local mainstream media, but also the apartheid laws that exist within uh, Israel. Jamet, a highlight of your time in Palestine and a low light of your time in Palestine? Um, yeah, uh, ooh, tough last question. Um, so I think it was really, yeah, it was time in Palestine, I feel, is, is so, um, it's so, I guess, punctuated by these real moments of belonging and then kind of also devastating moments of um, like rupture and pain as well. Um, And so I think probably the best I'd say highlight was um, I had some, some photos of my like great, great, great grandfather's old um, house um, or or castle actually um, in, um, in the village of Asgard, which is just outside of Nablus. Um, and so I had these photos because um, my one of my cousins had done some research and basically um, came across this and sent me through the photos. And so I had the photos and I knew what village it was in. 
um, and there was a mosque in the background of, of the photo. Um, and so I was like, all right, I just go to this village, I find the mosque and then I find the place. And so, I, I mean, yeah, I did that and I went there and it's, it's abandoned, like it's, it's completely abandoned, but it was this huge, um, beautiful um, mansion kind of looking out over the valley that um, uh, comes, comes into Nablus, basically. Um, and I spent a couple of hours just um, uh, exploring through the, you know, the ruins of this house, basically. Um, and and also spent um, some time uh, just just kind of sitting on the roof of this house and and looking looking out over the valley um, and Heaven. yeah just soaking it all up. But then I guess and and you know and just and just like crying on the roof, looking out over this valley at this beautiful view, both because of the the connection and the belonging, but also because. Um, you know, after, after five, 10 minutes of sitting there, I realized like on the, you know, the hill opposite, like I can see a group of settlements there and just thinking about like, that's encroaching exactly this way. And this is going to be the, um, the next, um, you know, this is going to be the next hilltop that um, is, is settled basically. Um, and so I guess in that experience, maybe, yeah, maybe you could say that's both the highlight and the low light um, kind of mixed in together. So that land is still um, still connected to your family at all? I mean, the house is abandoned. The castle, we should say, is like a, a castle. Yeah. Uh, it's abandoned, but it's still looked after by your family or? Um, it's, so I found out later um, that, uh, it, it is still in the family, but quite distant relatives um, from from me now. Um, and um, how I found that out actually is is afterwards. I because um, it's quite a small village. I just basically was walking around and um, like because you know I'm sort of elated at being there. I'm like, oh my god, like you know, this is like my great great grandfather's house. Um, and so I'm just going up and just chatting to people on the street um, about this, like telling them who I am. And um, you know, a couple of people were sort of like, oh, cool. Like, what, what are you doing here? Um, and, but then there was one um, house just uh, across the road um, and, and the door was open. Um, and I just, I could see that there was like a, fa a big family in there chatting. And um, I popped, I just popped my head in and basically told them who I was and they were like, come in, come in and um, ended up sitting with them for like hours and hours just for the whole afternoon um, chatting. And they told me so much about, um, about the, the concert and about like my family. Um, and uh, one of the sons of the family arrived like after I'd already been there for a couple of hours and he, um, he was like, oh, my, um, my wife's father knows a lot about your family, actually, um, because he, he was married to an Abidzi. And so he, he knows so much about your family. And so good stuff, hopefully. He's, yeah, yeah. And so he's like, let's, let's go meet him now. So we jump in the car, we drive into Nablus. Um, and so this, this guy, he, he owns a, um, a little convenience store there. And, um, and so my friend who's who my, my new friend who's driving is, um, 
basically just sticks his head out the window and yells to his father-in-law, um, explains the situation in like 20 seconds. Um, and then the guy just turns around, closes his shop up immediately, gets in the car. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and then he basically gives, gives me a tour of uh, the old city of Nablus and points out all of the old nobility buildings because um, a lot of the old like, factories were um, uh, our families. Um, and yeah, explaining all sorts of things about the history and um, yeah, like this is the water fountain where, um, uh, you know, your, your family would um, basically just... Um, have water for for anyone to come and, and take and um, you know all sorts of details like that and yeah it's just one of those really amazing experiences and topped off of course at the end by eating canapé together. You know what well, every everyone has to experience the the Palestinian hospitality even for you know a, a white Aussie they're welcoming so I mean people should you know get on the APAN website and go and go and visit the Palestinians get over there support them and and live it because what you're explaining there. It, it's you know it's hard to you're explaining it magnificently but feeling it, it's a different thing you know it's it's a hard thing to I suppose to uh, you know to tell people about you know realistic because it is brilliant it's so hospitable there's probably not a better way to end the show than to salivate over some Knefi from Nablus and to hear Rob's testament to uh, the hospitality in Palestine Jermaine Nabilisi uh, lowercase doctor uh, we look we look forward to reading your thesis when it comes out. Thanks very much for your article, Writing the History of Palestine, uh, which we'll put in the link in the podcast. Yeah, and people should share it because it really explains things brilliantly and it's really well written. Thanks so much. And th- thanks so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Make sure you share the podcast, friends, and remember there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.